0: Hi everybody and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm very pleased to say we have John Murray on the show and we'll be talking about the Charleston Orphan House, Children's Lives in the First Public Orphanage in America. John, welcome to the show. Thanks, Marshall. Hello. Uh, it's great to have you. I really enjoyed the book. We talked a little bit about it in the pre-interview. You found a remarkable cache of sources, and we'll get to that in due time. But I'd like to begin the interview by asking you to say a few words about yourself.
1: Sure. Uh, I was born in
0: Cincinnati, Ohio. My uh, father was
1: a mailman. He really was interested in local history and uh, made sure we went to see things around Cincinnati like President Grant's birthplace. Uh, I went to college at Oberlin. I was a a pretty indifferent student there and did not take many uh, history classes. I majored in economics uh, indifferently, and that indifference (laughs) continued into my first year of graduate school at Ohio State. Um, Luckily, uh, at the point when uh, the Ohio State University had put me on double-secret probation, I ran into the teacher who would become my dissertation advisor and took my first course in economic history. Uh, his name is Rick Steckel, and he was a, a huge influence on my scholarly life. I just found economic history so fascinating that I never really looked back after that. I, uh, I wrote a dissertation on the, the Shakers, Uh, I went from Ohio State to the University of Toledo, where I taught for 17 years. Uh, And at Toledo, I met a uh, historian named Ruth Herndon, who uh, was the next most important influence on my scholarly life. Ruth is a social historian of early America. And we collaborated on a few projects regarding children. Um, One of my... Dissertation projects with the Shakers had to do with how they treated apprentices. And so I had access to some uh, apprenticeship indentures from upstate New York that belonged to children who had entered the society. Uh, The Shakers were uh, celibate, so the only way they had of, of getting new members was to bring people in from the outside, and that included hiring in apprentices. So uh, what I enjoyed about those records was that by some New York state legal uh, decisions, the children had to sign the document and their parent or guardian. And I was able to connect the probability of the child's ability to sign his or her name with the parents, and it turns out the mothers had a tremendous influence and the fathers did not. And that was uh, an interesting result I wanted to continue working on. Um, so Ruth and I worked together on uh, public apprenticeship documents, that is uh, not, not Ben Franklin-type apprentices, but uh, children who were more or less processed through this early kind of welfare system. Uh, She knew a lot about New England, Rhode Island in particular, but she also had a lot of uh, records from Massachusetts, and I had records from South Carolina. And we looked at patterns in uh, contract formation for these public apprentices. And then we went on to uh, co-edit a volume of essays on public apprentices by a, a wide range of historians and economists, young and old, uh, that became uh, "Children Bound to Labor," which came out in 2009, and then uh, I guess because you know to, to step back into the into the 90s. Uh, I was interested in this question of public apprentices, and I'd kind of run out of, of records. You know, the Shakers just had a few dozen of these. So I was, I was searching on... Um, a, it, this may even have predated Google. I may have been... <laughs> uh, just for uh, phrases like apprenticeship indentures, and it turned out that Charleston Orphan House Records were were numerous, and the indentures had been microfilmed and were available through the uh, state archives in Columbia, and that uh, I bought, and the and the microfilm was pretty cheap, wow. at the time. so I could buy some. Uh, I, I kept going. That was that was my entree into the orphan house.
0: Yeah, well, that actually is a nice introduction to my next question, and that is uh, why and how did you write this book?
1: Well, uh, I knew some records were available.
0: That is these
1: these uh, apprenticeship indentures, and uh, I knew how to work with them from my my previous work on the Shaker apprenticeships. And uh, I did kind of kind of similar work uh, that that resulted in, in some articles on literacy rates and what tended to influence how the child's time in the orphan house ended. Whether they uh, went out to an apprentice uh, to apprentice to a, a, a shop, whether they returned to a family member, whether they they died in the orphan house or they ran away and uh all of that worked out you know nicely i'm i teach in an economics department so articles are the are the way mm-hmm. economists talk to each other and uh i did get some articles out of that and then uh i was talking with ruth um primarily ruth but uh, but kind of her historian friends i think of them who are now kind of my historian friends and they said you know there might be more in the orphan house records that would be worth looking at more closely. Um, And so I, I, I went down to Charleston, which uh, it was kind of strange. I hadn't actually needed to go to Charleston to do a lot of my, my publishing because I'd gotten all the microfilm from the state archives in Columbia. So I went to Charleston and at the time it it was just a a total fluke. uh, And, and, You know, from this perspective of looking at the book in my hand, it was kind of like a miracle or something. I went down there right after the records had been transferred from the city government to the county public library. And uh, what was so great about that was that, according to the archivists uh, I talked with in Charleston, the city government wasn't really in a position to take care of them, not that they were... I mean, this was perfectly reasonable for the city because their archive was set up to deal with things like, um, you know, property tax disputes and uh, property boundary disputes. And and they really weren't there to take care of two-century-old orphanage records. Uh, So they just kind of stuck them away. And I, I gathered from... Talking to archivists that the the records weren't especially well taken care of, um, and and then in uh, it, till about eleven years ago, in the beginning of two thousand two, the city moved them to the county's public library, which has a, a really good local history room, and they all knew just what to do with historical records. So that was uh, a real break, and then it was the timing was really good too because uh when i got there i i knew there were some letters available there there are basically three kinds of documents that went into this book the the apprenticeship indentures the minutes of the weekly commissioners meetings where they discussed what was going on in the the orphan house and then letters to and from parents Uh, masters of apprentices, prospective masters of apprentices, occasionally the children themselves, uh, letters from commissioners of the orphan house to masters. There were just a lot of letters. And they were well organized. Um, They were in boxes. And just by luck, uh, it seemed to me when I got to Charleston, many of the archivists were kind of, uh, petite, older ladies, and after the first box, they brought one box out, and I looked through it, and I transcribed a lot onto my, you know, then enormous, <laughs> and when I returned the box and asked for another, the the archivist just said, well, you know, these boxes are pretty big. Would you mind carrying it back? And I said, oh, not at all. Mm-hmm. And that, and she, I said, "Would you mind if I looked back here?" And she said, "No, no," because they had other fish to fry. So I could get a handle on how much, um, how many documents there were, and it was enormous. Uh, at that time, there was no finding aid. There is now because the archivist Nick Butler has organized the collection, created a finding aid. So if anybody wants to go and look now, it's it's a lot easier. Trick is that that uh, the records of people who were in the orphan house after I think 1900 closed for privacy reasons. But I wasn't interested in those anyway, so I I kind of had the run of the archive for a few days, and uh, I transcribed madly, Mm -hmm. and then out at night, you know, kind of walking around and soaking up the history. and I did that uh, a couple of times, uh, and then my family came to meet me one more time. So every almost everything I did, not quite everything, but almost everything I did came from that one collection. Mm-hmm. And once I started reading some of these letters, they I just personally found them gripping. I wasn't quite sure what to do with them, so I talked with, with uh, Ruth Herndon again because she was... She works with, uh, had worked with warning Out Records in New England, um, which were uh, interviews of poor, re- poor relief applicants to, that, were, that town officials used to determine their uh, town of settlement. So these interviews revealed a lot of personal details about the, the interviewees' lives that I thought was very fascinating. This was in her book. Unwelcome Americans, and I started to see some of the some similar things in these letters. Um, Families, you know, single women who who brought their children to the orphan house and explained that they were impoverished. In fact, uh, they had nothing. They had no material wealth left because what they had had the woman had sold to pay for food, uh, meaning, you know, extra clothing or, or pots and pans, that kind of thing. They were totally, some of these people were totally destitute, and they didn't really seem to fit in with the, I guess, with the Southern historiography that I was familiar with. And so I, I wanted to keep reading, which I did, and I kept transcribing and uh, uh, one of the archivists in Charleston, uh, a guy named Harlan Green said, so how many pages <laughs> of now? And and at that time, I had something like, uh, you know, a couple hundred pages of transcribed letters and maybe three or four hundred pages of transcribed minutes, plus all the, and I, I had all the indenture information in a spreadsheet and he said you know it's really time you start writing the book yeah. that, that was 10 years ago and of course i didn't for a while but
0: then i did then you did yeah that's right it looks like this book took 10 years to write i mean it's based on a, a truly uh, remarkable and assiduous uh, analysis of these really terrific sources and i don't want to congratulate you on that but let's begin to talk about the material itself I want you to set the scene just a little bit and tell us about how orphans were treated in 18th and 19th century America. And I have one particular question: What's the difference between an orphan house and a foundling hospital?
1: Oh, okay. Uh, let's let me answer those in, in reverse. Order. Okay. Um, <laughs> I get the, the so the simple answer is a, a foundling house is or foundling hospital, so I referred to the Aiken Foundling Hospital in the book. It's, it's for foundlings, uh, which meant generally infants, so babies, chil- children under a year of age. And at the orphan house, the officials liked to bring in older children, meaning, you know, certainly after they had been weaned and ideally when they were mobile not too mobile, uh, you know, four or five, six years old was when they liked to bring them in. So there was kind of a, a gap there uh, where um, the very young who had been abandoned, for example, at a foundling hospital, uh, the um, orphan house and the poor house would typically arrange for a wet nurse to take care of that child. Often uh, simply moving the child to the wet nurse's house Mm -hmm. and uh, paying her six, seven, eight dollars a month. And I think, I mean, I didn't see any systematic data that would appeal to my inner economist, but I think there was a fairly active market in wet nursing for pay. in Charleston at this time, so that would have that would have involved very young children up to a year and a half or mm-hmm. two years or so of age. So the orphan house generally took in older children. Um, often, what happened so there, there's kind of a gap you can see between say two and six years of age, and uh, what the orphan house liked in those cases, if a uh, uh, a widowed mother came to them with, uh, you know, kind of toddler age children was to recommend that the mother and the child go to the poor house, which was uh, the, a kind of catch-all institution um, in, in a different part of town um, near the, the workhouse and uh, the Marine Hospital—it was kind of where where uh, the true outsiders were kept, kind of away from most of the city. And once the child uh, became old enough, so four or five or six, uh, typically the poorhouse would come back to the orphan house and ask them to take in the child, reminding them and reminding city council when they watch these transactions that if the orphan house took in the child, the poor house would then send the mother out to work as a domestic, and that would end up being much cheaper for the city because mm-hmm. they only have the child in the orphan house to worry about.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So that's uh, that. That's kind of a, uh, that, that maybe gives you an idea of what, Went on with with young children. Now, um, what happened with orphans in uh, the late 18th and into the 19th centuries in Charleston? Um, you know what what this book catches in a way is a, a fairly small sliver of Charleston's life. So, a kind of ballparky. The city's population was about half white and half black, and the black population was about 90, 95% enslaved, with a small share of free persons of color. The slave slave children were the responsibility of their master. Free persons of color were in a real Netherland, um, when it, it, and it's not really clear what happened to their widows and orphans, the uh, free persons of color who were, uh, the free men who were tradesmen founded uh, fraternal societies with names like the Brown Fellowship Society and the Miners Moralist Society that were, that aimed to take care of widows and mm-hmm. orphans. So I know those existed, but they're, they're really kind of uh, not, uh, not well understood. Now, among the, the white population, Presumably, most of the population, from a variety of estimates, maybe four-fifths of the population, were fairly prosperous all the way down to, you know, kind of prosperous working class. And those children, by and large, ended up in their, those orphans ended up in their extended family. So what I'm catching, I think, in, in the book, are the 20% of the white population that was really poor. Uh, too poor to own a slave was kind of an official measure, but really too poor to own much at all. Uh, and that that was how they came to the orphan house. The, the orphan house was built for the poor, meaning poor whites. And um, the families who came to the orphan house needed to demonstrate their state of poverty so they would write or they would write letters or have literate friends write for them letters kind of letters of introduction that explained how they got to their Mm -hmm. their uh into their dire straits uh typically it was a widow the husband had had some kind of a uh, job often dangerous, you know, working on the sea, or one guy was, was uh, a victim of painter's colic, which presumably was lead poisoning. Um, the mother said that she had been in the city. Ideally, she had been born in the city, but the real kind of off and on necessary condition was that the children be born in the city. Uh, and they had lived a stable life, and now they needed help. And if, if they could cast it kind of in terms of a, a sort of exchange, so much the better. That if if the, the deceased husband had been a member of the city guard, they always wanted to emphasize that uh, as some some kind of sign of their contribution to the city's stability. Um and you would think, well, maybe they're just making it up. <laughs> you know, I'm really poor. No, I'm poorer than you are. Uh, but the the Orphan House was aware of that that possibility, and so they always sent out uh, a member of the commissioners. The commissioners were kind of trustees, kind of managers. They, they met every week in the Orphan House build, uh, and once a week sent out one of their number to investigate applicants, to to look on the grounds and make sure everything was in order. Um, After uh, an application came in, then the visiting commissioner would go out into the city to make sure that the the family had represented their situation accurately. And so I think, you know, with that, that kind of feedback mechanism there, that that pretty much ensured that... The letters are fairly accurate. I mean, there's no way to know, but I think they're, actually, they're, they're
0: pretty good descriptions of these
1: families' situations.
0: Mm-hmm. I see. So could you actually take us through a kind of hypothetical case of a family that had fallen on hard times and then uh, asked to have their child accepted into the orphan house and then what they did in the orphan house? Can you make kind of a composite I don't, I don't want to say average or typical because I'm—that's difficult. But could you tell us the stages and what happened, how they got there, and how they exited, and that sort of thing?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, here, what I, I thought this was—this was pretty typical. Let me just read you a letter that that a woman wrote to them in
0: 1814. Great. Uh, she says,
1: "Gentlemen, my husband, the late Lachlan Wright." Blaster,
0: yeah, I remember this.
1: (laughs) Died the latter end of September last, leaving myself with four helpless children, three boys and a girl, the eldest in his 10th year and the youngest in arms, in the most indigent circumstances. Such indeed were my distresses that had it not been, been for some charitable aid, my children would have been without covering or nourishment. I was married to the late Mr. Wright in 1801, and have been a resident of this city ever since. I humbly solicit your honorable board to, to take my situation into consideration and to receive two of my sons into the orphan house, namely Norman in his seventh year and Daniel in his fifth year, your obedient servant, S.L. Wright. So uh, this is a, a pretty typical letter, which is why I why I included it. It's It comes from a widow who, um, A a fairly recent, now some of these, some widows, my impression is that most surviving parents really hated giving up their kids. And some expressed that by hanging on to their children for months after the death of the spouse. Um, This one... uh, I forget when in 1814 this was written, but she refers to the husband's death in September last. So it had been several months and and she had been trying to maintain the four children. Um, The husband was a steady worker. She points out he knew a trade. Uh, They had been married for mm, 12 or 13 years. Uh, They had lived in Charleston the whole time. She you know, takes on the this kind of nineteenth-century um, uh, uh, language of, of uh, you know, I humbly solicit your honorable board, and uh, the uh, children were admitted. And plus, this this woman had uh, two uh, two well-known, uh, I guess, really building contractors write a reference letter for her, so. Um, I think in that particular case, that's a that's a pretty open and shut case. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, a tradesman, uh, uh, the life in Charleston. Uh, those, I the the commissioners would not have discussed that case for very long without admitting and, and admitted the children. Um, other cases became were were trickier uh, if the children had been born away from Charleston. Uh, This is kind of a, you know, part of this is a a tradition that descends from English poor law where the, the poor relief applicant belonged to a particular parish. And that part of uh, the English poor law came to South Carolina when the Anglican church was still established. And uh, those who were eligible for relief from St. Philip's Church in Charleston were those who were born in the parish. If you were from St. John's or St. James, you had to go back to those parishes to get your your poor relief. Um, so one of the things that the commissioners did was to look at the location of the family. Was it south of Boundary Street in the peninsula? Um, Trying to think of what else was what else was typical. I mean, I guess I would say that was that was pretty much mm-hmm. it. Some cases there were full orphans, and there was no uh, no parent to bring the children to the orphan house. And uh, often in those cases, because there was no place to send the children to, it didn't really matter where they had been born. The commissioners let them in, um, and those those children would have come to the orphan houses through um, an aunt or an uncle, uh, sometimes the employer of the most recently deceased parent. Uh, the churches um, and the, the city government still had poor wardens who uh, dispensed charity. They would bring uh, uh, children to the orphan house. So there were uh, most most of the children who came to the orphan house were brought by their mothers, but a few by the fathers, a few by other kin. Mm-hmm. Mostly it was the mothers or the uh, church wardens.
0: One mm-hmm. of the interesting things, I'm sorry to interrupt, but one of the interesting things that, that I found is that they were, uh, I don't know if this is the right word, but they sort of deposited the kids there. They did. They, they weren't given over permanently.
1: Oh, that's right. That's yeah. right. Um, one of the, one of the recurring themes is that, uh, there, there's kind of a mismatch between the, the legal document, the indenture, which says that the, uh, the the responsible adult, whoever that was, 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 uh, binding the child to the orphan house for as long as the child would be in the orphan house. And then the orphan house had the, the responsibility, um, and the authority to bind the child out into a, into an apprenticeship. And it sounds very cut and dry, but it seems to me in a lot of cases, especially of surviving parents who were in Charleston or even elsewhere in the low country, that in many cases they maintain contact with the child, uh, who was in the orphan house. The, um, Orphan House was very conscious of its relationship to the greater city. And one consequence of that was that they maintained a kind of open door policy and allowed anyone in the city, because it was a public agency, to come in and stroll around on the grounds and visit with the children. And that included the surviving parents or aunts and uncles. Um, and uh, I think parents and children took advantage of that to maintain a relationship while they were while the child was was officially in the orphan house, um, and even afterward too. That there are uh, especially among t- this was the the nice cases were children who had been bound into uh, homes or shops far from uh, Charleston in in Columbia or in the uh, country, the northern more parts of the state. Uh, if the parents remained in Charleston then they started writing letters and some of those letters survived between uh, parents and children. I think uh, in, in both of these cases in the orphan house and, and as an apprentice that parents tended to maintain contact with these children. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't want to get, it's that whole kind of Philippe Arié thing. You don't want to say too much about what the parents felt. But they do say things about, you know, this child means so much to me, or I I love this child, my life has no meaning without the child. And I think really the most uh, prudent course of analysis is to take those statements at face value, um, because that's how the parents acted Mm -hmm. in so many cases. Mm -hmm.
0: Now, is it the case, and again, this may involve a certain amount of speculation, that the parents deposited the children with the expectation of getting them back?
1: Sometimes, I think so. Uh, Parents, I I think the parents had a, a couple of different by and large, uh, it had a couple of different ideas behind dropping the, the children off at the orphan house. One was many of them referred to uh, their belief in the importance of an education, which sounds kind of trite. And I, again, I, I kind of treat those at face value, although to, to some degree parents may have said that to sort of pull the strings of the, the orphan house commissioners. Uh, but they also said things like, I'm uh, I'm bringing my child to the orphan house because I tried sending him to the free school and he didn't learn anything there. And, and the free <laughs> schools have a pretty lousy reputation uh, in the historiography and that's it's completely consistent with everything else that was written about free schools, so probably some of these parents really did want, um, want their their kids to to get an education. Um, at the, at the same time, this is much harder to 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 think about how far ahead people looked, but in in many cases, children of Uh, widowed mothers came to the orphan house. The the mother, you know, left them there. And then after a few years, she came back and retrieved the Mm -hmm. the child. And it looks like she had probably remarried. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, you know, after that happened, I think it's reasonable to guess that some of these women did expect that if they could leave their child or children at the orphan house and go out and work, that in the future, it was possible that they could come back and and retrieve their children. So some of those initial findings may have been made, at least with the hope of returning in the future to to get the child back into the the, the
0: natal, you know, some reformation of the natal family. Mm -hmm, I see. So when they entered the orphan house, they were... Uh, indentured immediately. That is to say that the orphan house or the directors thereof then had the right to put the child out to labor or an apprenticeship. Is that right? That's right. Uh-huh. Uh, and, uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. And then I guess th- th- there's a kind of a conflict of interest here in, in a way. And I wonder how they resolved it. On the one hand, they also felt it was their mission to somehow educate the child. Yes. So how did they write that? I mean, okay, you get a kid who's eight years old, the kid can go work or they can educate the kid or they do both.
1: Well, the, um, the, the rule book said that they wouldn't bind children out until age 14 for boys mm-hmm. and 15 for girls. So uh, in a set, so in an ideal sense, there was going to be this fixed period of time in which the, the children studied in the orphan house. Um, I think the real uh, conflict of interest came at, at the tail end And among the girls, not so much the boys, but the girls, because uh, once the boys kind of aged out of the orphan house, they were relatively easy to place um, in uh, uh, apprenticeships or back in their old uh, family. But after girls were mm, 12, 13 years old, even some 14-year-olds, they became a really important source of labor within the orphan house. And at the times that the commissioners discussed sending the girls out at a later age, those seemed to be related to times when when they needed extra work done and girls were uh, doing textile work Mm -hmm. with the orphan house, Or especially, apparently, washing. I mean, washing was really grueling work. Uh, The the orphan house hired slaves, and they owned some slaves who, who did washing. And then some of the records say some of the bigger girls helped with washing. And I think that the orphan house sometimes really hesitated to send out some of those bigger girls. They wanted to keep them in the orphan house just a little bit longer so it would save them from having to go out and hire another slave sure. to wash. So that's the only, uh, that's, that's where I saw a conflict of interest.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when they enter the orphan house, then they, uh, they're, they're instructed. There's education that goes on. How did that uh, take place?
1: Well, it took place uh, in somewhat roughly in parallel with these the free schools. The orphan house school uh, ran for more hours than a day. Um, it ran through the summer, and they could force the students to attend. And the free school was uh, really much more of a free for all that, that students attended when they weren't working, and they the, the parents preferred to have them work. Um, the uh, books, you know, were were what you would have found in a lot of nineteenth century. Uh, early nineteenth century schools, uh, Morse's Geography Made Easy, and and Lindley Murray's uh, Grammar, uh, stuff like that. Um, the uh, w- one thing that evolved over time was the 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 purpose and the activities within the orphan house school. Um, at the beginning, in the seventeen nineties, it seems like they were giving the children a you know, fairly broad education, but shallow, uh, really just a little bit of reading, a little bit of writing, a little bit of arithmetic, arithmetic for the boys. Um, and there, there were several cases in the 1790s of applicants coming to the orphan house to get apprentices in the orphan house, turning them down almost every time, saying we don't believe our children are educated well enough to to take on this kind of job. Um, After the early 18-teens, they had received uh, an annual gift to support a boy at the South Carolina College in Columbia, what's now the, the University of South Carolina. And after that, they put a lot of work into preparing two boys. One was supported by the Orphan House donations that came to the Orphan House. One was supported by the state of South Carolina. Those two boys were prepared for Columbia at the College of Charleston or the High School of Charleston. And some did very well in Columbia and many in the eyes of the Orphan House did not. They just didn't pan out it's not really clear why they um in, re- in response to a query about sending uh, a particular boy to columbia uh henry D. so Shore wrote that they hesitated in this particular case to send uh this particular boy to columbia and he kind of went on and said well the the problem is that most of the boys we sent to Columbia don't pan out, that they they seem best suited for uh, kind of skilled trades. They, they didn't really take to uh, book learning. And, and so there's this interesting ambiguity about the whole educational process at the Orphan House. I mean, they... One thing they did really well, I think, was was to give girls a basic education, um, and I I compared that in the book with uh, kind of before and after literacy rates, and uh, uh, girls of the same age, girls leaving the orphan house were much more likely to be able to sign their name than girls coming into the orphan house at say ages. 11 12 13 something like that so the orphan house did a great job of providing a basic education for girls uh they seem to have put a lot of energy into preparing a small number of for college and that didn't seem
0: to uh work out as well as they had hoped Mm -hmm. so they were also put into these apprenticeships can you explain exactly what those are and and what is this notion of being indentured exactly
1: Oh, yeah, sure. So an indenture is is just a synonym for a contract. You know, you, if you, there are a lot of uh, land transfer contracts that begin with the words, this indenture, you know, between so-and-so and so-and-so. These graphics began uh, that this indenture uh, was between an, an adult who was uh, responsible for a particular child, and the orphan house. And this this indenture contract had two parts. Uh, The top part legally bound the child into the orphan house. When the parent signed it, he or she gave up all parental authority over the child. The bottom part was between the orphan house and the master of an apprenticeship, and Although, you know, these were really public apprenticeships, not craft apprenticeships like Bill Rarabaugh writes about. Um, these were public apprenticeships arranged by agents of the, the city government. They were very similar in a lot of ways to traditional apprenticeship arrangements. The, the child, the, that in loco parentis authority had passed from the parent to the orphan house, then it went to the master. And, The child typically moved in with the master um, and over a period of years learned more and more, uh, ideally learned more and more of a particular skill. Uh, At first, you know, a boy bound to a printer simply ran errands, swept the floor, did, you know, kind of little kid stuff like that, but gradually over time learned how to work print. Uh, learned how to manage subscriptions, really got kind of a complete view of of uh, a particular business. Um, girls, it's not quite as clear. Girls basically did housework. Um, some, a, lo- a lot of the uh, indentures called for girls to learn housewifery, which just meant that they were, you know, a mother's helper. Mm-hmm. Um, some learned. Uh, you know kind of actual skills that you could trade on out in the market like book binding uh, one binder t- was very enthusiastic about teaching his trade to girls rather than boys um, so that was that, that kind of traditional view of apprentice, apprentices and apprenticeships was, was what happened
0: mm-hmm. I so, see and this was supposed to prepare them for uh, to earn a living after they were uh, done at the orphan house is that right that's right. That's I see. Right. Uh-huh. And do you have any records on uh, outcomes, as they say in educational statistics today? You know, we talk about outcomes: person goes to college, what happens to them afterwards? How did uh, children at the orphan house fare? Can we say?
1: Well, uh, they're <laughs> kind of like uh, those uh, present-day educational researches. Uh, there's there's nothing systematic um, because you know, probably at your school and at my school, it's really hard to hang on to students and find out what they do after they leave. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the orphan house was in a similar position. I could follow a small number of students, uh, well, students, children uh, and young people through kind of the beginnings of their time uh, after they had left their apprenticeship. uh, Mm -hmm. Mostly what appears in the manuscript records, of course, is, is heavily biased because you either get people who write back to the orphan house asking for help because they've had an unusually difficult life, or you get people writing back to the orphan house thanking them for all their help, and they their, their lives turned out to involve, you know, big happy families, mm-hmm. or uh, in one case, an appointment to the california supreme court uh and everything but most of those cases those in between cases just never show up so uh i was able to track down um i guess eight people toward the end of the book and and follow them at least into their first um kind of the their the first episode of their adult life after they had gotten out of their time as apprentices.
0: Mm -hmm, I see. So uh, let's spend a few minutes talking about the elephant in the corner. Uh, You mentioned it a little bit before, and that is the fact that the orphan house was entirely for uh, destitute white children. Um, How did the, uh, this might seem like a naive question, but how did the city fathers and mothers uh, rectify this with their, more general values, say Christian values or something like this? Oh, well... Is there an answer to that question? I, I've always wondered about it. You know, good Christians, that they were. At least I suspect.
1: Yeah. No, I think that I, I think that the overt conflict in their minds or consciences must have occurred after the war. That is in the antebellum period and, and going back into the early Republic period, I suspect the question of why don't we allow black children in or what are black orphans going to do just never crossed their mind, Mm -hmm. which is, I guess I've just, I think it's just a sign of how, you know, how strange the past is Mm -hmm. Um, because they, it's, it's true. They, they, they really didn't. I think they, they thought that the enslaved children would be taken care of one way or another by the master, and the free black children were so small in number that they, it just wasn't on their radar screens. Um, there, but it it was you know occasionally this pops up. So, for example, there were a couple of cases of children in the orphan house. Who, after they were in the orphan house, it came to the attention of the commissioners that, oh, these are colored children. And in one case, it only happened after the mother came back for the child. Mother turned out to be, Afri- we would say, African-American. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the other case, this is what's there's something going on under the surface that just didn't make its way into the written record that I'd sure love to know about. There were two children who were in the orphan house in in what seemed to be a very typical case. And then the commissioners got word somehow that these were supposed to be colored children. And they wanted the mother to come in and explain this. Toot sweet. Mm-hmm. And she did, She wasn't about to do that. She simply, uh, she, I don't think she was literate. She had a letter written for her, but... Uh, her message was, if you don't think my children are white enough for you to care <laughs> of, send them back to me and I'll raise them on my own. And that was exactly what happens. No. You know, in the rare cases where race of a child was an issue, it seems like the commissioners moved really fast mm-hmm. to get the black kids out. But, um, there, there were such a small number of examples like that. I just don't think it crossed their mind. Yeah,
0: you know, I see what you mean. Now, it, 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 at the end of the book, you talk about the sort of general attitude of white Charlestonians uh, toward the, I guess one would call it the viability of their city yeah. and their kind of defensive stance, that they realized that there was a population that was potentially hostile. Um, and what role did... Uh, and you, you suggest, I think, if I recall correctly, you suggest that the Orphan House played a certain role in uh, their attempt to maintain a kind of supremacy. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah,
1: that's, uh, that uh, was my, my uh, way to answer the question, you know, why Charleston? So here's this very distinctive institution uh, of the Orphan House that did such a wonderful job you know, relative to standards of the day uh, of taking care of children, why Charleston? And, you know, one answer would be that Charleston was very rich. Even uh, in per capita measures, if you include the enslaved population, Charleston's per capita wealth was really big. Uh, It was a wealthy city. Okay. So that's that's a reasonable question, but I think it's only necessary and not sufficient because there were certainly big pockets of wealth in Philadelphia and Boston and New York. Why why no institution like this at this early date in the eighteenth uh, century? And I think the key to understanding that question is is to look at the place of the orphan house, both physically and and in a kind of civic society sense within Charleston. So physically, the orphan house was right across the street from the College of Charleston, which also dated from the uh, late 18th century, in a part of the city that had other educational institutions. So it was seen as a, a method of uplift for the poor whites of the city. And at the same time, it um, it brought all parts of the white city together. That is, the, the poorest whites came to the orphan house when they were in a, a catastrophic situation to take care of their children, which they did. And if the working class and middle class... Came to the orphan house to get children back out to work in their shops and homes, and then the upper class served the orphan house as commissioners, and in in this way, the the orphan house kind of bound white Charleston together, and that that I think that appears most most dramatically in this uh, anniversary speech given by Christopher Gadsden in, in uh, eighteen ten, and he's still talking about the uh, Saint-Domingue revolution um, in Haiti. I think that was such a... a uh, I think that event was maybe more important for Charleston than things like the Stono Rebellion, the uh, Denmark Easy events of the 1820s. Um, Gadsden says the, the importance of orphan House is not what it does to the children, it's what it does to the city. Mm-hmm. Because it brings the city together and binds the white community together in a way that no other institution does. And and Gadsden says, if you wonder what's going to happen if the white community doesn't stand together, look at San domingue uh, where the, the Grand Blancs and the Petit Blancs uh, were at each other's throats until the slave rebellion occurred, and um, so his his lesson, you know, kind of with the, with his index finger shaking at the the audience, was that we all have to pull together and and keep the orphan house going. And in that sense, I think it was um, a, a kind of way to create a a more unified white community, and that was what. Caused the orphan house to, to draw on the entire white community for charity and kind of general support.
0: Mm-hmm. Let, me, let me ask you, this is a kind of final question. It's not actually the final question, but what happened to the uh, orphan house during and after the war?
1: Oh, uh, well, the orphan house, the physically, the orphan house sat in the city. And when federal forces came in, they, they took the orphan house over and, and used it, uh, uh, to keep uh, troops in. The, the children moved out to Orangeburg and spent the war uh, far from Charleston. Uh, and then it, in the course of uh, early on in Reconstruction, the, the children and, and Agnes K. Irving, the, the schoolmistress, moved everything back into the city. Um, so the, the orphan house continued, Physically, in Charleston, the, the name of the street in front got changed from Boundary Street to Calhoun Street around 1850, and that's that's what it is now. And the Orphan House continued uh, all the way up to the early 1950s. Mm-hmm. And by that time, you know, the need for orphanages had, had changed, and so the institution moved again now to... North Charleston, where it's the Carolina Youth Development Center. And the building, the Orphan House building and its chapel were torn down to... Oh. <laughs> yeah. Charleston <laughs> <laughs> oh. And really a shame was torn down for a Sears and Roebuck, oh. which was in uh, I think 1983 and now the building belongs to the College of Charleston. And there is a plaque that says this is where the Orphan House was, but it's <laughs> Uh, really a shame. All the all the physical parts of it are gone.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, that is that is too bad. Well, uh, John, thank you very much for uh, being on the show today. I appreciate it. We've taken up a lot of your time, and you've been very gracious to us. I'd like to close the interview by uh, asking our traditional final question on new books in history, and that is, what are you working on now?
1: What, what I'm working on now, I, I have one more Charleston Orphan House project, and that is I, I'm uh want to make a, an edited collection of letters mm. and uh, documents that would kind of go with this book, but would more directly reveal, especially the children's voices, but also their parents.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you have all those, are you, are you, um, trans, you have them all transcribed and everything now?
1: Yes. Oh, that's They're, uh, uh, luckily now more, uh, almost all those letters have been microfilmed. So I can do it. It's kind of, uh kind of almost too bad. I wish they hadn't been microfilmed, but I'd have to go to Charleston somewhere.
0: Yeah, Right, right. <laughs> I see what you mean. Well, again, thanks for being on the show, um, and thanks everybody for listening. Today, we've been talking to John Murray about his book, The Charleston Orphan House, Children's Lives in the First Public Orphanage in America. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I wish everybody a great week, and John, again, thanks for being on the show. Thanks a lot, Marshall. Okay, bye-bye. Bye.